Hello, I'm John Grisham, and this is Book Tour. Today I'll have a conversation with novelist Stephen Carter and New York Times critic Janet Maslin. We'll talk about reading, writing, publishing, and all things related to the world of books. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today I'm on the Connecticut coast in the lovely village of Madison, sitting in a great independent bookstore called R.J. Julia Booksellers. My guests today are Janet Maslin, longtime film and book critic for the New York Times, and an old friend, the novelist Stephen Carter, who, when he's not writing, teaches law at Yale. The bookstore is owned by Roxanne Cody, who founded it in 1990, and here's Roxanne. Well, my name is Roxanne Cody. Uh, I think I know many of you. I'm the owner of R.J. Joya Booksellers and thrilled to welcome the lucky um, ones of you who were able to sign up fast enough and join us for this event. Um, that, that That's a celebration of your swiftness and devotion to John Grisham, so we'll take it. Um, I'd like to take a minute before we start this um, unorganized um, sort of casual conversation that the four of us are going to have. Uh, the obvious reason for our being together is to welcome John Grisham. So John Grisham, in case you don't know, is one of the best-selling authors in history. In case you don't Not know. Not just like... And um, this is his first tour in 25 years. He is, I think he's trying to meet all 300 million people who have read <laughs> his book, which you guys are a good start. And his new book lives up, his new book is called Camino Island. It is as riveting, perfect, engaging, and smart, maybe brilliant, as any of John Grisham's books. And so here's what it's got. It's got a theft of um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's five manuscripts, which are held in the library at Princeton. It's got a crooked, charming bookseller in Florida. It's got a student debt-ridden, sort of unpublished, writer-blocked author. Who's very cute, by the way. Adorable. She's, she's in a bikini a lot in the book. <laughs> and until the very tippy-tippy end of the book, no lawyers. N no lawyers. There are legal problems, but there are no lawyers <laughs> to mess them up or solve them. Uh, so that's John Grisham, in case you didn't know, and you'll all get to read the book. Of course, I wouldn't plan anything for tomorrow, because when you start it, that's it. Uh, we are delighted to be joined by Stephen Carter, who is a resident of Connecticut. <laughs> at Yale Law School and has been a guest of R.J. Julia's um, before for his novels and his books on constitutional law and 
various other issues. He's he's the big brains um, in the outfit. And Stephen, welcome. Uh, Janet Janet Maslin, um, you probably all know. Uh, Janet Maslin is one of the smartest, uh, fiercest, most thoughtful book reviewers. She with the New York Times. Uh, she's been a film critic, a literary critic. And for those of you who might not have had a chance, had a great interview with John Grisham in the Sunday New York Times book review. Janet Maslin is who we at RJ Julia's count on. If she tells us a book is good, we're there. If she tells us maybe not so sure, we we do still read it and see if she had it right. But mostly we agree. So that's great. So if you would join me in welcoming our three guests. Thank you. Thank you, Roxanne. This is, uh, this is my first tour in a long time. I had one national tour a long time ago that didn't work out too well, so I stopped. Uh, touring after that and reached a point uh, pretty soon where I didn't have to tour. Uh, it's, it's just not that important after a while. And uh, over the years, I have seen uh, articles about great bookstores, independent bookstores, uh, like R.J. Julia's, and I've, I've often said to myself, you know, I should go there. I should go there as a best-selling author. I should go say thanks to the bookstore, uh, thanks to the fans, meet some of the readers and hang out. And I had some really pleasant thoughts about doing that, and I never did it. Okay, <laughs> just out of pure laziness, I didn't want to get on. I didn't want to go on a tour. Um, and so I was asked uh, uh, earlier by Roxanne uh, why I'm touring now, and it's really because I'm just bored. Uh, <laughs> my wife wanted me out of the house, uh, you know, for a while for the month of June, and so I, I said, "Okay, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to hit the road." go to some of the great independents. I'm going to 13 stores. And somebody had the bright idea of after signing books all afternoon, uh, inviting some local writers together or other people and do a podcast. So this is what we're doing now. This is all being recorded. It will be broadcast beginning later this month. I think the first one is going to be on June the 22nd. And it'll be edited a little bit. But because it's a podcast, there's no script. No one knows what we're going to do tonight or what we're going to say or who's going to say what. That's what makes it fun. And if we really screw up, they can cut it out. They can get it out later, but we're not going to screw up. But I want to thank uh, Stephen Carter and Janet Maslin for being here. Uh, Roxanne for this gorgeous bookstore in this beautiful little town that is just idyllic. Thanks for having us. And um, so at this point, we're going to start talking about tours. Do you tour? <laughs> I have toured for most of my books, uh, not all of them, and... I don't know, your experience is probably going to be very different from mine. When I tour for a nonfiction book, I tend to write the kind of books that are, my sister-in-law calls them the everybody is entitled to my opinion uh, <laughs> books. And you write a book like that and you've got an audience, but they're all there because they're angry, not at you, just about the issue that you wrote about. They don't buy the book, but they do stand yeah, up at the question period to, the make, book, yeah. to make speeches. And when I tour for fiction, it's nice because people are smiling. They came yeah. because they read the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was a whole lot of fun today and yesterday meeting fans, meeting you folks for the first time because book buyers, especially fiction readers, are the, the nicest people in the world. Um, so we'll see a, a month from now how the tour goes and whether I'm still so optimistic <laughs> and, and still in love with all you people after signing about 7 million books. Um, 
Have any of you read the book yet? It's, it's been, you've had 24 hours. <laughs> they just got it. That's, oh, okay. It really only takes 24 hours tops. I mean, uh, it, 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 if you want, it goes very fast. Now that you bring that up, I got a question for you. Uh -oh. You reviewed books for how many years for the Times? Six. Well, I'm still sort of doing it, okay, uh, but not full time anymore. But I started in 2000. So there was a time when you were reviewing two and sometimes three books a week. Usually two. Two. How long does it take you to read a book? Uh, well, I would have to read them in about three days, but I don't speed read or skip or anything. I just would read all the time. Okay, I've reviewed. Uh, how many books have you read, Butch? Two, a few. Have I reviewed? Yeah. Probably a dozen or so, okay. if that. I've done it three times for the Times in the last 25 years and never enjoyed it uh, <laughs> because it's, you, you, it's a lot of work. Uh, you've got to... Nobody uh, said you were supposed to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was your job. You did it for years. Uh, uh, yeah. Then you, get, then, then, then you have to write the review, which, you know, has got to sound intelligent, you hope, okay? And if you like the book, uh, I, I did not write any bad reviews. There were some books I didn't like, but I finessed around that. But it's. Did it's you a, know the authors? Uh, two times I did, and one time I did not know any of. It was a collection of books written by lawyers, and they were all dreadful. See, they should never give you a book by anybody you know. Well, I, otherwise I wouldn't do it. I turn them down. <laughs> really? But here, here's 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 the problem I have. Without ask you this. When you review one of my books, okay, and I've read your reviews of my books over the years, and you've always been fair. So okay? noted. <laughs> you have to know all the other books. You have to know the, the writer's you know, bibliography. You have to know everything else. You are a piece of cake because I read you no matter what. I, re I read you for fun. So uh, I, didn't ha I didn't have to go study your other, your other work. Uh, you do have to know something about the person's other books, but I think... You're, you're mostly writing about the thing that's in front of you because most people who buy it and pick it up are, are pretty much only going to be interested in, in what they're reading right then and there. Uh, so I, I always believed in, in dealing immediately with the book itself and then in a larger way with the writer's whole career, the whole context of it, the bigger issues. But I, I thought the Sunday reviews were more for that. The daily reviews were almost a news story in a way. John Grisham has a new book. Here's what it is. Uh, here's what it's like to read it. Here's what I thought of it. Here's what you might think of it. Uh, so, but you were doing the Sunday ones, and that, those are more strenuous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, another question that has always, um, I guess, intrigued me. At some point when you were reviewing books for the Times, you, I don't know if you made the conscious decision, but you started reviewing uh, me, and people like Dan Brown, Lee Child, popular oh. authors, and you were and you wrote those reviews um, in a very fair and balanced way, and you you supported those books Funny, and popular fiction. Did, I mean, did you catch? Was that difficult at the times? Yes, um, I was a movie critic, and I moved over. For, I mean, I I love popular culture, and I moved over from movies to books, and I started wanting to do these books. Uh, by people like Lee Child, who had never been reviewed in the daily paper. And uh, there, were, there was a, a general sense of, why should we bother with that? And uh, I remember being getting together Dennis Lehane, George Pelicanos, Michael Connolly, 
and a guy I didn't know who turned out to be Ian Rankin. They just brought him along. And just getting together for, for breakfast to do an interview with them, and there had never been a story about all of them before. Uh, the Times just overlooked that. They had Marilyn Stasio's mystery column on, on Sunday. But by and large, they just never covered those kinds of books because popular fiction wasn't considered uh, d dignified enough. But I just brought my, you know, I, I reviewed your movies before I, sorry, before I reviewed your books, and it just came naturally to me, and nobody stopped me. So, it, But there was resistance or, crit or criticism of you. No, there just was not a, yo, you're doing that. Mm. Yeah. It was, the Times, Times, the Highbrow. Didn't, uh, well, I, brought, I like to think I brought it down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> we brought it down a notch, okay? We, <laughs> we brought literary fiction down a notch. <laughs> I got a question for you. What are you working on now? <laughs> well, actually, uh, since you should ask, I'm working on a book. Uh, that's nonfiction, my first nonfiction book in a while. It's a, story, a true story of a black woman who was the first uh, black female prosecutor in New York and worked on the prosecution of Lucky Luciano. In fact, came up with a legal theory on which he was uh, convicted. Who was the defendant? I'm sorry. Lucky Luciano. Okay, Luciano. Lucky Luciano. Uh, she came up with a legal theory on which he was defended. And it's, a lot of it is about other aspects of her life. It's mainly about Luciano and it's uh, the both the barriers she faced because of race and gender and also other adventures in her life and other problems that she had. And what makes the book interesting to me is that she was my grandmother oh, uh, wow. as, as well. Really? So this, is, uh, this book is just about done and it'll be out uh, next spring. You got a title? Uh, the working title is The Light Between, which is a quote from one of her short stories. She also has a short story uh, uh, writer. My publisher's not sure about the title, but I'm kind of uh, sticking with it. So that's kept me over the last few years from doing anything else because I've never written biography before. Uh, between the interviews and the archival work and the other things, it's been, the research has been like nothing I've ever done, but it's been an awful lot of fun and I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, to it. Did you have access to your subject? She's your grandmother, right? She was my grandmother. She died when I was a teenager. Okay. Um, and I knew very little about her history except in a vague way from family stories. I picked up most of it later or from the research for the book. How many black female prosecutors were there in the city back then? She was the only one. Um, <laughs> she was the only, when she was hired in 1935, she was the only black female prosecutor, that, as far as we can tell, in the United States. There was one in Illinois who just did juvenile offenses, but in terms of actually prosecuting organized crime, mafia figures is what she was doing, um, she was the only one. Um, there were a couple more hired in the 1940s, but as far as I know, she was the only one in the United States. Did she face uh, intimidation, uh, threats? There were threats um, against her as against the other prosecutors. Uh, she sent her son to live with relatives in Barbados. Um, whether that was because of the threats or another other reasons is we don't know, but she did do that, uh, and they they had the bodyguards and the whole the whole shebang. So, how long have you been working on it? You're pretty slow, you know. I, I, I don't know, four or five years, something like that. It's been it's been a labor of love, but it has been a labor, and it I, I you know since I've written a biography before, you know, I wrote fiction, I wrote nonfiction. I figured like my say, I toss it off in a year. Or less. Yeah. I had no idea uh, what I was uh, what I was taking on when I when I uh, when I started this. And I, although it's been a labor of love, I am glad to see the end of it. I'm literally 
working on my editor's last comments, and then it'll be off my desk. The labor is almost over. Huh? The labor is almost over. The love is still there. I've done one nonfiction book, and I don't know why I did it. I mean, I love the story. It was, um, it was uh, an obituary in the New York Times, and I love obituaries in the New York Times. It was about a guy in Oklahoma who had just died, obviously, his obituary. Um, but he, had, he, he was my age, uh, my race, my background, same, same part of the world, and he was in rural uh, Oklahoma. I was born in rural Arkansas, not far from him. Same religious background, same everything. And he went to death row, uh, wrongfully convicted. He came within five days of being executed uh, in 19, uh, early 1990s. And there was a picture of a guy named Ron Williamson standing in the courtroom one day in an ill-fitting suit, coat and tie, and his hair was all messed up. And, and, and the headline said, uh, Ronald Keith Williamson, uh, uh, freed from death row, dies at 53. And I thought, this, that's a pretty good hook right there. And so I read the obituary, and I said, this, I've got I've to write this story. And I'd never done nonfiction. I didn't know how to do it. I mean, I, I was, I'm not a journalist. I took off to Oklahoma to uh, start researching. I was going to knock it out in a year or less, you know. <laughs> uh, but nonfiction is too much work, you know. You got you to... Gotta, I'm not known for my accuracy in fiction <laughs> because I don't care. It's all fiction, okay? If I have to write something about a hotel or something, if I, if I can't remember it, I'll just make up another hotel. That, that's, but you do that in nonfiction and you get sued. And I got, I got, sued, I got sued three times for this book, but it's, I, I can't see doing uh, nonfiction again. But that's, that's a captivating story, your grandmother. Uh, can I ask you a question? Yeah, okay, here's a question. I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, <laughs> as a movie critic, okay, when you're watching a movie, how do you take notes about the movie? In the dark. In the dark. <laughs> On a notepad, scribbling. In the theater. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You had a little flashlight or something, a little headlamp? You. Every now, every now and then somebody would give us all pens with lights as a like joke present, but we... We, we didn't need them. We could, I would write down mostly dialogue, and, just so I could quote it. Um, How many times did you watch the movie? Usually just once, unless it was something really great, in which case I'd ask for another screening. They do a special screening just for you? Sometimes? Sometimes. You did that for 22 years, right? 23. 23? And then other years before. I'm older than the hills. I didn't ask your, <laughs> I didn't ask your age, okay? We're not, we're not going into age, okay? We're not doing that. I've been a critic for, oh gosh, I've been a critic of some kind since 1970. You started with music so, though, right? Yeah. Rolling Stone? Uh -huh. See, most folks don't know that. Most folks. Uh, but Google and Wikipedia tell you these things. <laughs> <don't you? laughs> Thanks a lot. There's a lot of stuff out there. But you did movies for 23 years and books for the last 16, uh, 17? Yeah. Have you ever read a bad review of one of your books and want to just kill people? Or, or, or contact the critic or write a dirty letter or do something? You, you know, actually, I, when I first started writing in the early 90s, I actually did that. I used to write letters to critics when they wrote. It was a, a stupid idea. I used to write letters to critics. After about my fifth or sixth book came out, my wife laid down the law, and she said I was not allowed to read the reviews of my books anymore. Between my blood pressure, my letters to the critics, and my obsession with, you know, the, the one thing, I get all these good reviews, this one bad review would ruin me for a week, I'd have to oh, stay in bed. Month, yeah. And and so she laid them all, and so I actually stopped reading the reviews. So my publisher, my various publishers, 
stopped sending me the reviews and started sending them to my wife, who would then carefully cull from them the ones that I was allowed to read and not give me the others. And But I noticed these patterns. So like one of my novels, I noticed, you know, I didn't get the New York Times review. I hope you didn't write it, Janet. I don't. I don't know who did, but but I think I didn't get the New York Times review. And I said to my wife, I said, "Did they send you the New York Times review?" She said, "Well, dear," she said, "You don't have to read all the reviews." She said, "I remember that." And and I used to. And, and then on the other hand, I'd get these these little reviews from magazines I'd never heard of, but that were very glowing and uh, uh, and, and and so on. So I began to see a pattern here. But that actually made me feel good. I felt I was being very well taken care of. Uh, by my wife. I will say that in the book reviews I've written, um, I have never trashed a book. Even when a book is bad, I try to read it the same way I read bad student papers, which is to say, I always try to find something encouraging to say at the beginning and something encouraging to say at the end, how much I'm going to dump on it um, uh, in the middle. And maybe this isn't how you get your reviews read for the reason that Janet uh, uh, mentioned, but I can't bear it. I, I, I cannot sit there with something somebody spent possibly years on, um, because I know how it feels for me, and just sit there and say, this is really terrible. In that sense, I suppose it's fair to say that one reason I don't write as many book reviews as I get invited to write is that when I write them, I have a tendency to lie. I, I, don't, I don't tell the truth to the reader, and so I don't know if that means the reviews are any good or not. That's why you guys shouldn't be reviewing other writers. That's what happens. Uh, you, you can't bear to do it. I, I, I understand completely. So have you ever had a, uh, have you got the dirty letters from the writers? No. No. My, oh. These weren't dirty letters. They were very polite letters. You, you pointed your thumb this way. I don't mean, I don't mean, I mean you. I mean writers in general. Have you ever had one call you and, and, uh, and cuss? Uh, my phone at the Times never really worked. So, oh, how so convenient I, for you. So I, and I work out of my house, so I never really got mail or messages. In fact, somebody just discovered a drawer from, from before the Times moved to its new building that had half of my stuff and half of Michiko Kakatani's stuff. And it must have been from the 80s or whatever. And they fished out a few interesting postcards from interesting people, and they said, you want these? And I said, sure. And... The rest of it, they just trash. But that's that's how the mail would get to us. Um, never. So, you're pretty, you're pretty so I have no idea what anybody ever said. Since we're here, and since I was supposed to review your book, but now I can't do it because we did our story. Right. Can I just say something about your book? Sure. It's really good. Uh, <laughs> and, sure. and what hasn't come up here is that, uh, what is this doing? Um, is that... It is really fun. You set out to write a book that was fun, that was going to be a beach book, that was going to be different. And uh, you will find that this is not really much like his other, his other books. It's meant to be entertaining. It's, it's meant to be, uh, you've called it a caper story, mm -hmm. a heist story, whatever. It's full of writers saying bitchy things about other writers. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's... Uh, I think it's going to be a runaway. Well, I should I shouldn't be blurbing your book while we're here, but I I, I think it's going to do very well because because it's so much fun because it's clear you had a good time doing it. Uh, it's it, it's more of a departure than you would think. And uh, I had two friends who were going away on a vacation to an island, and I was going to give them a copy of it, and then I thought this really isn't fair. I have to give them two copies. 
because they're going to fight over it otherwise. And they they might as well both read it, and then they can talk about it. And uh, uh, one of the things she said to me in the interview is that you, you made you very happy at first to see multiple people reading multiple copies of your right. book. I think that's going to happen with this one. It, it's a great summary. Thank you. Now that you've been real nice to me, let me ask you a question. <laughs> what, what's what's the my one book, and, and I, I want an answer, my one book that you really didn't like? I told you I didn't like the Rogue Lawyer. You didn't like Rogue Lawyer, okay. okay. And, and I reviewed it together with one of Michael Connolly's Lincoln Lawyer books and said, I That's didn't right. know why you were getting so close to that. Yeah. I heard that same criticism because the guy in Lincoln Lawyer operates out of his uh, backseat of his Lincoln, and the guy in Rogue Lawyer operates out of a van that he, you know, that's his office. And so I caught some blowback uh, from, I'm not going to tell you who, but uh, <laughs> not, not Michael. Michael and I are, are, are very friendly. Uh, but um, some people who work for him or his publisher thought that I was getting too close. And I said, let me tell you where that came from, okay? Michael did not invent that. Uh, when I finished law school in 1981, the first great wave of legal advertising had hit us, Steve, and it was out of control. Lawyers could advertise anywhere, television, billboards, whatever. And there was a story in some law magazine. It wasn't ABA Journal, but it was some legal, legally, um, go ahead and get that if you want to. Uh, <laughs> we all do that, okay? That's no big deal. Do you want me to answer it for you? I'll talk to him. <laughs> we'll put him on the podcast. But it was a, there was a story in this, in this uh, law magazine about a lawyer. This is 1981. A lawyer in Mil, uh, Milwaukee or someplace who uh, his office was his van. And he would go out into busy shopping centers and pull up, you know, close to the sidewalk, open the van up, pull out his big signs advertising divorces for $99 and <laughs> wheels for $29. And it was, you know, kind of low-end stuff. That was, he, but he operated out of his van. And so I thought I filed it away. I wasn't writing back then, but I filed it away. And I, I was um, surprised when I wrote Rogue Lawyer that somebody thought I had stolen an idea from, from Michael, and that, that was not the case. I don't think you stole it. I just thought... Um, Got too close? Well, you come up with better ideas uh, than that. Well, listen, no, some books are better than others. But when you publish every year, um, and that's what I've done now for a long time, when it's time to write the book... Um, when I start writing it, um, I go with the best idea I've got. Well, how about how about this question for you? What's it like to publish every year and to have to publish every year? <laughs> Sorry. I don't have to publish every year. Well, but yes, you. I mean, you told well, me if you don't publish a legal thriller in October, there'll be riots in the street. Well, <laughs> well, for right? you know, <laughs> to avoid civil unrest, I, yeah, I try to, uh, <laughs> do not want to. Uh, sure, I could take a year off, but I don't know what I would do if I took a year off. Uh, you know, that's, that's, I enjoy writing. I still enjoy it a lot. Uh, I'm lucky because the words and ideas are still uh, fresh, and, and I get a, a kick out of it. And so um, I, I, I said this before, you know, the way my schedule goes from – I don't have another job. You know, Stephen teaches law school. I don't, I don't do that. You don't that. need another job. <laughs> I don't need another job. That's true. Um, I quit being a lawyer after 10 years. But from, from 7 o'clock in the morning until, you know, 10 or 11, uh, if, if I didn't go to my office and write for two or three hours, I have nothing else to do to fill that time. And uh, I'd probably get in trouble. 
uh, you know, I go, I go to the big office downtown in Charlotte for midday and take care of business and go play golf. It's a rough life. But I, but I mean, <laughs> that, that first, those first few hours, I have nothing. There's no, if we want to travel and go somewhere, we go. We don't worry about writing. Um, and as long as, as long as the ideas are there and, and the issues that I enjoy writing about, and I, I don't think there's ever going to be a shortage of legal issues in our culture, our society with as much, uh, injustice as we have. And, and I still have a, um, you know, a desire to address a lot of issues that I think the books will keep coming, you know, for a long time. Support for book tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. He began by talking about daughters and how special they are, how they are different from little boys and need special protection. He told them of his own daughter and the special bond that exists between father and daughter, a bond that could not be explained and should not be tampered with. If that story from John Grisham's A Time to Kill made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. Question for you. Uh, you got a full-time job with tenure, right? Fortunately. You are tenure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, fortunately. After 35 years? Yeah. Uh, how do you write? What's your writing schedule? <laughs> well, uh, I used to, until a few years ago, I had some health issues. Until a few years ago, I tended to write in the summers and late at night, uh, a habit I got into when our kids were small. When they were at home, I would write between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., about four days a week. I can't stay up quite so late anymore, so now I basically stay home from campus about two days a week, and I devote the entire working day, which is about seven to three, roughly, to um, uh, uh, to writing. Um, but of course, in addition to books, I've got, I've doing my scholarship and other things, and, and things tend to step on each other's toes. The biggest problem I have is having several things going at the same time and feeling the tug to work on each of them. Uh, setting priorities is very hard. I get up in the morning thinking I'm going to work on say, my nonfiction book, and then instead working on some article about law and religion in one of my other fields. The discipline isn't always there the way that it, uh, that it used to be. Do you still have the pressure as a, as a you know, a well-known professor to write about the law, academic stuff? Well, it depends on if I want the respect and admiration of my colleagues. Do, um, do, <laughs> I, I suppose. Do you care about that now? <laughs> you know... Speaking of things that aren't going to be on the tape. <laughs> um, so you see, it's, it's been 35 years I've been at Yale Law School, and they've been wonderful years. Um, and for 20 years, almost all I could think about was the respect and admiration of my colleagues. And then for another five or six years, it was pretty important to me. And for the last few years, you know, I figure either I have a reputation or I don't. I'm not going to suddenly earn one if someone doesn't like me. Uh, and if they do like me, that that's great. But I, I don't, I was, I think most people say I was a very productive legal scholar for about 20 years, very productive, one of the most productive legal scholars. We look at the citation charts. And then for the last 10 years, I've produced a lot less. Um, but I'm comfortable with that. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of gliding uh, uh, now, and I have other interests. Yeah. What about you? How would you answer that same question? If what? What question? Uh, uh, do you, do you need the respect and admiration of your colleagues at this My point? My colleagues? At this point. Yeah. <laughs> a, bunch, a bunch of writers? He has no peers. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Does it matter to you? At this it doesn't point? matter to me. 
Uh, I mean, I, I know a number of writers, uh, friends with some, uh, enemies with none. Uh, Your friends are like Stephen King. You, yeah, <laughs> yeah, people like that. Um, but we, you know, I don't, uh, we don't talk about each other's work. I mean, I, I don't know how he feels about, I think he likes my stuff, uh, Scott Turow, Pat Conroy was a buddy. Um, you know, a, a few uh, writers that I've, I've come to know, I don't really think about having their respect and admiration. I mean, I, it's not something I think about. I'm just friends with them. Do you care what the literary world thinks of you? No, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I'm not. That was in, clear in the book. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not in that world. I mean, I, 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 I'm not. I've never tried to be, you know, some kind of serious literary artist. Uh, I, I try to write a high quality of popular fiction that appeals to a lot of people. And, and my goal each time I start a book is to write the best book I've ever written. And, but that book is always going to be based on plot and, and, and designed to make you turn pages and stay up late, lose sleep, call in sick for work, and, you know, to finish the, turn the pages. Ruin society. Ruin society. Civil unrest. That's what I'm after. Um, so, no, I, I don't, uh, it, you know, maybe I did. Maybe I did with The Time to Kill a long time ago. Uh, think about, you know, maybe being, I don't know, more literary, whatever that means. But that book flopped. When it came out, well, it flopped ish. It flopped ish, uh, and after it flopped, I said, "Okay, I'm gonna." You know, this is a secret hobby I've got. I was a lawyer. I was a member of the state legislature. My wife was having babies. Life was pretty crazy. I didn't have time to write. I didn't have time for this little secret hobby of writing, and so I, I said, "Okay, I'm gonna do it one more time, and try to be more commercial, more popular, more accessible, and find a bigger audience," and that worked. Okay, and when that worked, I said, "Okay, I found what works. I'm going to stick to it," and that's you know that's what I've done. Did you actually study anybody or or look to anybody for for inspiration about how to find a bigger audience or what worked? Well, when I started writing *A Time to Kill*, I started reading a lot of bestsellers, uh, mainly suspense writers, uh, Ken Follett, uh, Robert Ludlum, Lecrae was around back then. Uh, guys like that, uh, Frederick Forsyth, uh, this is uh, mid-'80s. Uh, I read all those guys. A better bestseller list back then. <laughs> yeah, some great guys back then. Um, and, um, I mean, I, 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 didn't, I didn't really study them. I don't know. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have some magic formula to put together. Uh, it just, you know, it just happened, and it happened with the firm, and it became a – you know, it became a, a book that people could not put down in the, in the spring and summer of 1991. You never and, think this this works, that doesn't? or, or Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, when I finish a book, you have to love them all to finish them. But, um, uh, you know, with the benefit of time, you look back and say, yeah, that was not that strong of an effort. Or I really like that book, not that book. You know, I, I do that. Uh, not much. I don't spend a lot of time dwelling in what's already happened. Uh, I'm thinking about the next book and the next, yeah, the next book. The next what's your favorite? Sentimentally, it's a time to kill because it was uh, sort of autobiographical, as was a painted house. Uh, it was, a, it was a sort of a childhood memoir. Um, you know, I can't rank them. I can't tell you. And honestly, I tend, to, I tend to forget about them real fast. By the time you finish one, 
your mic. By, by, by the time, by the time, uh, sorry about that, Jen. Uh, by, the, by the time I finish one, you know, I've gone through so many drafts and I'm so tired of it. Uh, I put it down real fast and never go back. I'm not going to go back and, and read one. You never go back and reread your books? I've never re- reread a book of uh, mine except for uh, Bleachers, which I read for the audio. So I had to read oh. it for the audio. <laughs> Stuck a microphone in my face, and I spent three days in a sound booth, you know, beating my brains out trying to, you know, read this book. And I thought, well, for, for what, $5,000? I'm thinking, why did I bother to do this? Okay, I'm, I'm never doing this again. So, Have you re- do you read your books? Oh, no. 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 So if somebody gave you a John Grisham trivia quiz, you might not pass it? I get embarrassed all the time. Uh, and I'll tell you who embarrasses me. Uh, this, is, this happens to me all the time. I work with the Innocence Project. I'm on the board in New York. And we have these, um, these annual big benefits in New York. And we, and we bring in the exonerees who have been released in the past 12 months. And there's usually five, six, seven of them. And these guys have served from 10 to 30 years for crimes they didn't commit. But that much time in prison, and most of them became very big readers, I mean, that's all we had to do. And, and a, lot of them, a lot of them will say, when I, no. when I went to prison, I could barely read. And now I've read, you know, 500 books. And I've read all 31 of yours. And in the partner, why did she take the money and run? <laughs> and I'll say, who are you talking about? You know, I'm not sure if I remember that one, okay? But they know. And uh, we have a big laugh about it all the time. But uh, I'm continually embarrassed by questions like that. Uh, There was a Jeopardy uh, category one night. um, I had the whole category. And um, somebody had given me the heads up, and I missed three out of five. (laughs) Specific, I mean, really specific questions about the novels. And I'm thinking, I can't. can't, I wish you told me that for the story. I can't. I can't remember that. Yeah. And I think they missed it, too. And Scott Turow told this story recently. Scott has been on Jeopardy three times in his career as single answers, okay? And all three times, the, they missed it. They say, who was John Grisham? <laughs> Somebody, you know, we, we laugh about it. We laugh about it. We have time for a few questions. Yes, ma'am. The question is uh, uh, for my... Uh, my um, children's books, the Theodore Boone series, do I ever meet with the kids and get feedback? I've done that one time. And it was the most horrifying experience I've ever <laughs> I started writing Theo Boone because, um, oh, my, my daughter was teaching uh, four, fifth graders. She, she's a school teacher, and uh, she was then. And she was home one weekend, and we we're having dinner, and she said, she, she, she bought a bunch of books, and she was really pushing reading, reading, reading. And she said, could, she said Dad, could you write suspense for kids? She said, I can't find any good suspense. There, there's fantasy and historical fiction, a lot, of the, a lot of books, but I can't find any really good suspense. Could you write suspense for kids? And I, I, that's how it got started. So I wrote the first Theo book, and uh, it came out, a, I guess, a year later. And so they had this <laughs> – I went to her school – they got all five of the uh, fifth grade sections together, 150 kids, in the library, and I signed a book for every one of them. I personal, personalized the book for every kid, and, um, and so I'm talking to the kids, and we're doing okay until they get to ask questions. And at that, I've never been so, I was sweating. I've never been so terrified. 
you know, the first question was, how much money do you make? Okay. Did you answer the question? I did not answer the question. Uh, but I mean, it was, I was downhill from there. Uh, sweet question, sweet kids, but they will ask you anything. So I try to avoid kids if I can. Yes, sir. The question is, first of all, uh, the writing method, and then we'll talk about the gingerbread man in a minute. What, what's your writing method? Longhand? No, I, I, I write uh, at the, using a laptop. For many, many years, I wrote on a typewriter, an electric typewriter, which was still, in a way, my favorite means of communication, but there's no way to get it repaired anymore. So I wrote that for years and years. I'd write manuscript pages on a typewriter, and I'd correct them I'd, and, and retype them or have someone else retype them. Did but now I do a laptop. Out? I, I did in the, back in the day, but that's been a long time. But now I, I write on a laptop, and it's terrible. Uh, a, a, a dear colleague of mine who died a few years ago um, used to say that the computer was the worst thing to happen to, ever happened to writing because since it's so easy to go back and change what you just wrote, you can't get out of the first sentence. You can't get out of the first chapter because you can change it. And mm. So when you have a typewriter, you got to finish, and then you go back and look at it again. So I, I think it slows me down, but I do use a laptop to write on. I wrote the first book in longhand, um, A Time to Kill, uh, over a three-year period on, uh, on steno pads that court reporters use. And I always, always kept the current one in my briefcase. And I wrote half of the firm on yellow legal pads. And about halfway through that, this is 1988, finally saw a little word processor that looked, looked like fun. So I bought that and wrote the second half. Uh, and and been on, I've been on, on the computer ever since. Um, I don't know, I don't know uh, if, it, if it's, I don't think it affects the quality because with the with the computer, obviously, it's, it is easier easier to fix things. It's easier to to jot down notes. It's easier to to look for words. It's to me, it's a it's a better way to do it. Uh, I've tried to go back and do some longhand uh, recently, uh, writing some fiction, and it it didn't work out very well. So I, I'm I'm going to stick with the computer. Gingerbread Man was an original screenplay I wrote in about 1990. Uh, I don't know why I wrote it. I mean, it's I'm not a screenwriter. I've written three or four of them. None of them have worked, okay? It's just a different set of muscles. It was a, a story about um, a commitment, a, the wrongful commitment of a mentally unstable person by the family. I, I don't know where it came from. And it, it um, bounced around Hollywood for years and years and years, and I'd forgotten about it. And then they called one day and said, Robert Altman was going to direct the movie. And by then, I, I, you know, I, I didn't care. There was no money involved. They made the movie. They, uh, they flew it to uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, to give me a private screening. I watched it with my wife, and I said, I've never seen that story before. <laughs> but I get, I, get, I get the credit because I wrote, I wrote the original screenplay. That's one crazy thing about Hollywood. You know, even, I don't care how bad the original screenplay is. A screenwriter is going to take credit for it. You may have 15 others by the time it gets made. But that first guy who really stunk it up gets the original credit. Uh, but it, it was, it was a, a movie. I, you know, again, I, I saw it one time and thought it was. Um, Did you ever meet Altman? Never met Altman. Never uh, wasn't. By then, I probably would not have gone to the set if I'd been invited to go. Uh, I just, I didn't care. What inspired you to write the uh, Improvotion part? I, I've always thought that the best answer I can give to a question like that is I have no idea. I, I always the fiction that I've written. <clears throat> which always came much harder than nonfiction, always began with characters in my head, uh, and I always was searching for a story to tell about. And that is, before I had a story, a subject, an inspiration about some current event, 
I had characters and it was a matter of waiting over the years as I worried them around. I'd like to know how long it took you to write your first novels, both A Time to Kill and The Firm, because The Emperor Ocean Park, uh, my first novel took me probably 10 years uh, to write. So I'd like to know, they haven't taken that long since then, but that was, I'd like to know how long, also in addition to the other question, how long it took you to write uh, when you decided to sit down and start doing it? Well, the inspiration for A Time to Kill came um, because I saw something in a courtroom one day that inspired me to sort of create this courtroom drama as seen through the eyes of uh, a young lawyer in a small town in Mississippi, and that was the life I was living. And it was a, you know, it changed a few facts, and it was a very compelling courtroom drama. And I had never written anything before, uh, so I thought, I, I, I'm going to try to capture this. And, and that's, that's how I got started. It took me three years to write it. Um, working almost every day, learning something about the craft, studying, reading, trying to learn how to write a book. Um, it was a it was a mess. It was a thousand pages long, and we had to cut a third of it. That was a year of my life. Okay, one one year went down the drain, and I said, I'm not doing this again because uh, I'm just I'm, you know I'm too lazy to do that. So um, that's why that's when I started outlining. That's when I learned the value of outlining and plotting and planning the whole story before I start. Um, as far as 10-year-old kids, I, I don't know if there's any advice other than read. Oh, he's 20, okay. Uh, well, keep reading. You'll, you'll never meet a writer who's not a voracious reader. We read everything and love books and love. And that's one thing uh, that I really enjoy about Camino Island. It's all about books, bookstores, book selling, rare books, and a really cool guy who owns a bookstore who never wears socks, okay? <laughs> He's in Florida, okay? They don't have to wear socks in Florida. But he wears a bow tie. He wears a bow tie. He wears a seersucker suit every day with a starch white shirt. And a, he has a, the suits are all these different shades of seersucker. A little bow tie, dirty buckskins, and no socks. And that's our cool guy uh, who, who's also a playboy. He loves women. But anyway, back and to your son. And a crook. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty crooked. Back to your son. Uh, you know, at the age of 20, I don't know... Um, if, if there's any advice to give other than there are certain things you can do as a student to 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 help you uh, when you start writing. First of all, you can you can master grammar. Doesn't that sound like fun? Um, you know, most of us have not done that. Uh, we can get by with it at, at, at this level because somebody's going to fix it for us. Uh, vocabulary is huge. You, know, you can you can always study things to you know to to learn more. I would say reading and and writing. You know, write right now. I wouldn't try to get published at the age of twenty because it's it's very rare. Uh, but you know, practice always helps. You know, write stories. Take take notes about uh, unusual things or people or incidents or names or whatever you see. Learn to write that down because you never know when you're going to need it. Yes, ma'am. A sneak peek to the project coming down the pipeline. Well, I finish, I start a legal thriller every year in January. I finished in July. And because I knew I was publishing Camino Island in June, I, I hustled up back in the wintertime and I finished the legal thriller um, a couple of weeks ago. So it, it'll be out in, in October. Um, I really, I don't like to talk about, one of my pet peeves with writers is they, they talk their books to death. They're always talking about, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing this novel or, uh, or, uh, hey, I'm going to write a novel about, you know, I, always, I want to say, shut up and go write it. There, there's, <laughs> there's nothing to brag about until you've written the book and you've got a contract and it's going to be published. At that point, you've got a lot to brag about. 
but don't talk the book to death. So I've, I've learned over the years, don't talk a lot about my books. Having said that, <laughs> I'm fascinated by the student debt crisis in this country. It's, it's now at $1.3 trillion in student debt. 44 million young people in America owe money. Last year, a million went into default. And those who are straddled with the debt, the money's far too easy to get, as much of it as you want. It's almost impossible to pay back. And now young people can't uh, buy homes. They can't start families. They can't even think about investing uh, because they have so much debt. And no one knows where this crisis is going to go. So I, I touch on that briefly with the novel. That's the backdrop. But it's especially how it relates to for-profit schools, for-profit universities, for-profit law schools. Uh, there are law schools that get bought and sold by business people who charge a lot of tuition that's paid for by the taxpayers. It comes in as federal loans, easy loans for kids to borrow 50 grand to go to a lower tier law school that's for profit. And those guys are making, they get to 50,000. They're making the money. That, that's the whole backdrop. It's a story of some law students in Washington who just drop out and get revenge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have time for wait, one more. Can, one more. Wait, can I ask you something? One, one last yes. question for me. Uh, if, big if, Camino Island turns out to be a big success, uh, would you do more in this vein? Yes, a great question. <laughs> I've already thought about that. Uh, maybe a, not a sequel, but I really like the setup. I like the I like the island. I like the uh, literary community that's all fiction. Um, and you know, I could see a good murder mystery down there. Yeah. Maybe involving other characters. Maybe involving some of the same characters. But I think that's a real uh, good idea. One more. Yes. We had one more. Okay. Yes, sir. How do we know when a book is done and we say that we're finally finished? <laughs> I know that it's done when I meet the date when it's supposed to be turned in. <laughs> and I have, to, I have to stop fiddling around and let it go. When I type the end at the very end. <laughs> the truth is, um, with, uh, I had a good experience with the Rainmaker of the movie. Francis Ford Coppola did the uh, adaptation. He was wonderful. He stuck to the story. He wanted me on the set all the time to do nothing but just drink espresso with him. Uh, but he was really, really meticulous. And so I learned a little bit hanging around him. Um, and he said he can never let one go. He said, I can never let a movie go. And, and he, he literally edited for six months, tinkering, 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 tinkering. And finally, they just kind of kind of get it, you know, and take it away. It's kind of that way with... You're uh, lucky you didn't write Apocalypse Now. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't write that, um, but I mean, you could you could tinker forever, but uh, but you reach a point where the publisher says it's it's going to press, and we and we'll get right down to I don't know how your operation works, Stephen, but we literally um, at the printer's office right before it goes to press. This is after it's been seen by you know a lot everybody at Doubleday uh, and copy edited to death. Uh, the proofreaders, three or four proofreaders, will sit around a room. I think read chapter by chapter. They go through the whole thing, you know, all following each other. They get paid to read it chapter by chapter. And I have up until that moment <laughs> to make one more change. I've never stopped that process because it's going to, it's going to, it has to go to print. 
to meet a deadline. So we, we, we have to let go at some point. Well, what I'd like to do in closing is thank Stephen Carter and Janet Maslin for uh, joining us. And I look forward, Stephen, to reading that book about your grandmother. I'm fascinated already. Uh, and John, I'd like to thank you for any number of things. Uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I opened the bookstore in 1990. Uh, so the store is 27 years old. And I thought the firm came out in 1991. We sold thousands of copies. And I thought, it's going to be a piece of cake. Uh, so you set me up for a big set of false expectations. And I sort of am still holding that grudge. Uh, but what I really want to thank you uh, for is, you know, I believe when I opened the bookstore that my goal uh, was to make people excited about reading and understand how that could change their lives, add to their lives. And having books like yours every year to sell and excite new readers and old readers is, is the joy of being a bookseller. And so I want to thank you for giving me and all our booksellers that opportunity for almost 30 years. And the fact that you've joined us here in our gracious um, surroundings means an enormous amount to the community, uh, to, to the people who are here, to the people who didn't get here, who are going to be annoyed um, <laughs> about that. Because writers as generous as, as you make the, the good and bad part of book selling just a pleasure. So... Thank you very much. You're very generous. Thank you, Ray. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to my guests, Janet Maslin and Stephen Carter, and our host, Roxanne Cody, in this beautiful bookstore here in Madison, Connecticut, to all of the staff, the volunteers, and all the many loyal customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.